According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in the book of Philippians tonight. Philippians chapter 1, looking at verses 21 and following. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we have a verse that contrasts life and death. And as so many other places in the Apostle Paul's writings, when he's writing about life and death, uh, that really is beside the point. He uh, usually has a larger point than he wants to make uh, in the context of a passage whereby life and death are, uh, are featured. And so we're going to be looking at some of those passages tonight as well. And I look forward to that. Picking up where we were Sunday morning at the 9.30 hour and uh, continuing on through, uh, through the book. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each one of us the privilege and blessing to prepare our hearts for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have tonight to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open our eyes, to teach us, to feed us from your truth. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is. Uh, we, we don't earn this. We haven't deserved this. Who are we, Father, that we should come into your counsel? And yet you freely uh, welcome us to understand you and to know your thinking. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us and leads us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness yet again, Father, to glorify your Son tonight through the teaching of your word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, before we do begin the Philippians material, though, we all want to take a few minutes for some questions, and so we'll get the microphone uh, over here for our first question, and then uh, you get our second question. How about that? I have a question in uh, Genesis, I believe it's in Genesis chapter 8. Um, I believe the last verse, possibly, yes. Uh, Genesis eight twenty-two. It says, uh, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. That being said, prior to the flood, was there just like a perfect environment, a perfect temperature, no rain, no cold, no heat? Uh, yes and no. I mean, as, as we understand it, based on this passage, based on other passages, there was no rain, actually. The water would rise as a mist or as a dew in the morning. Not until the flood did there, was there actually rain. And a lot of people believe there's a, there's a, there was a canopy. That's kind of a common theory that the water's above and the water's below, that the water's above was a, was a vapor canopy that surrounded the earth until such time as the floodgates were opened and, and that happened there. So clearly uh, there was a judgment with Adam's sin, first of all, where the earth itself was cursed. And that affected the environment. But then another additional environmental curse that hit with Noah. And so and that included not only um, weather phenomena, rain and, and, and storms and whatnot, but also animal hostility was instituted then. It's only after the flood that there's uh, permission to eat meat and the fear of, of man that comes upon the animals and, and so forth. So yeah, before the flood uh, things were different and then obviously before the fall things were different. Well, see, because what I was thinking is when it speaks about the flood, it talks about how, you know, that canopy, you know, burst open and there was rainfall and then the fountains broke loose and, you know, mm -hmm. it sprung up from the ground. Um, could that be the, the reason behind God making that promise to never flood uh, the earth again? Because now they're experiencing rainfall that they've never experienced before until the flood. That was their first time experiencing rainfall, which you know, caused the flood. So God kind of foresaw that there might be issues with them thinking, oh, great, it's going to flood again when it rains. Oh. So God made the promise not to flood, you know, to flood the earth again because possibly they may see it as that. I have to think about it. I'm, I'm maybe, maybe not. Um, I'm tempted to say probably not. But the, the whole point, though, is to, to say, look, I destroyed the earth and the judgment was by water. Never again will I destroy the earth by water. But one more time, I am going to destroy the earth and the heavens because the heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. And so that's the warning that we read about in Second Peter chapter 3 is that there was a destruction once already by, by water and there is a promised destruction that will happen again 
and this time it's going to be by fire. And so that never again promise is a never again promise by water while recognizing that there is still a future destruction uh, that, that comes in the day of the Lord. So. Okay, thank you. All right, you bet. Kevin gets our second question, unless he's intercepted along the way, over to the recording booth. And then we'll come back here, okay? Also, I got four email questions that we can get to also. But yes, sir. Okay, uh, I have two questions on time. Mm-hmm. Um, when the new heavens and new earth are created, the, the question I have there, are, during that period of time, are we outside of Alpha Omega? Are we outside of no, the no, we're created within, time that we have now? No, we're still within the boundaries of, of time. We're still within the Alpha Omega overview of time. So we will always be within the boundary of time. No, once the, uh, once the thousand generations are complete, then Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. And I believe that that is the Omega moment beyond which then we enter into eternity future. Okay. And my second question is in Daniel 7.25. Daniel 7.25? Yes. How is times, times, and half a time, three and a half years? Oh, excellent. Yeah, well, it's, it's three and a half somethings. And uh, so, uh, but the word year is not there. That is correct. So it is a time, it is two more times, and then it is a half of a time. Oh, wait, you just said, so it's time, then two more times? Because it says times, times. Right. The first time is singular, the second times is, is plural, and then there's the half a time. So Got it's it. one there's plus two word. and a half makes three and a half. Right. And it's only then with context and comparison then that we find that the three and a half years also equals 42 months, also equals 1260 days, also equals. So we have the other, the parallel passages of, of Scripture that give us the definition of the time, times, and half a time. Uh, similar to, by the way, when you get to chapter 9 and you have 77s, okay? Those could be seven hours, seven minutes, seven seconds, seven years, seven centuries. Uh, they're just 77s, and it's only because of a context and parallel passages that we know that those are seven years. So they're septads of years of which 70 of them come in between the, the proclamation and the, and the end times. Thank you. Uh-huh. You're welcome. All right, Wes, next question there. And then we have questions over here too. Is that right? One over here. I've got your email question. Yes, we'll get to that. Yes, sir. Uh, my question is in regards to Sunday's class and ver- Hebrews 9, 10. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10? Yeah. Okay. Um, is it correct in thinking that the term various washings is referring to the baptism ritual? Uh, no, I wouldn't take it that way because this is these are the um, Old Testament liturgies, the Old Testament rituals uh, for food and drink and various washings. And that would include the sanctification of the priest and the high priest uh, of their persons and their garments and the... Uh, furnishings within the tabernacle and so forth. Those would be all the Old Testament washings. And, and that's the whole chapter is about the Old Testament Levitical system that is ready to give way to grace, to reality in Christ, for you and I in the New Testament. Okay, I've heard it taught that way, so I just wanted to clear that up. Thank you. And the time of Reformation there has nothing to do with Martin Luther. <laughs> all right, that's, uh, this is kind of a rough weekend to mention that since the 500th anniversary of of uh, Martin Luther's 95 Theses was just yesterday. but uh, No, that's the time of Reformation is the specifically relating to us in the age of grace, but then also looking forward to what will really be new for Israel in the, in the millennial kingdom. So there's kind of uh, two things we want to consider when we get to chapter 9 that we'll have to deal with at that point. Okay, All right, um, some email questions that came in, including one from Bill. Uh, what are the clean birds in Deuteronomy 14? Uh, they are anything that's not listed as an unclean bird in uh, Deuteronomy 14. So eagles, vultures, buzzards, red kite, falcon, all, everything that's listed there as an unclean bird, that's the list of unclean birds. And if it's not on that list, then it's assumed to be a clean bird. Um, although it's curious because there's still a lot of arguments to this day on some of these birds. And some of the Hebrew vocabulary is very up for debate among the rabbis and among the, the Hebrew scholars and so forth. And it was so terrible. In 1611, when the translators put together the King James Bible, there was like 30-something different Hebrew words they didn't know what to do with. 
So they called them all owls. <laughs> and uh, so if you read a King James Bible, you've got a lot of owls in the King James Bible that uh, represent a whole bunch of different Hebrew words. And I think more modern English texts have tried to, uh, try to find other translations that would render those better. So Anyway, that was Bill's question about clean and unclean birds. And then uh, Robert had a question. Ooh, and I'm going to confess uh, he is correct. Um, I have frequently spoken about our Savior's half-brothers and half-sisters that Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus. And uh, James and Joseph and Simon, they were listed by name. Four of the, of the brothers were listed by name in Matthew 13, 55 and 56. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers? James and Joseph and Simon and Jude, right? And we don't know a whole lot about them other than James wrote the book of James and Jude wrote the book of Jude. Uh, but we don't know much more about the others. Also, there are plural sisters that are mentioned there in verse 56. And I've always said, I've probably said this 50 times in, in 25 years, but um, that so we know about four brothers by name and we know of at least two sisters because of the plural use of, of sisters there. Well, Robert brought to my attention that there is uh, an adjective all, are they not all with us in verse 56? And so his sisters, are they not all with us? And would that not mean three or more sisters instead of two or more sisters? And so um, I have to repent and confess that yes, the, uh, the feminine nominative plural adjective pasai uh, does mean all. And all means all, and all means three or more. Um, even though I can find one secular use where all is used for a pair, uh, it's not normal. And the normal use of all means all, and all means three or more. That's why it doesn't say both. It doesn't say both his sisters, are they not with us? It says all his sisters, are they not with us? And so uh, I will admit Robert found that and I thank him for it. Uh, so he had at least four brothers, at least three sisters. Mary was the mother of eight uh, by the time she was finished with that. Jesus, of course, being the firstborn. We don't hold to the Catholic doctrine of perpetual virginity for Mary. All right. Then he goes on to speculate, do you suppose that since they were sinners, all of his siblings might have resented uh, having a perfect older brother. <laughs> and, uh, and I think probably so. I know my younger siblings did. So <laughs> that, uh, I suspect that uh, Jesus' younger brothers and sisters likewise. So, so Ellen, you're you had saying a, in verse 56, they refers to the sisters and not all of verse 55 and 56a. Correct. In English you could read the all, and as sisters are they not all with us? And in English, the all could include the mother, the brothers, and, uh, and, and the carpenter himself, but it does not. The, the all that's there is a feminine plural all, and it only applies to the sisters. But they were applying to the sisters also. Yes. Yeah, the they all is, is only the sisters for that, for that adjective, correct. All right. Goodness. David had an email. Is the third servant an unbeliever? Yes. The rascal that gets uh, thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that is an unbeliever that is thrown into hell um, on that. Although I'm reading a couple of books now on the outer darkness that uh, might change my mind later. I, I'm skeptical. All right. And then Ellen had a question, what is the basis and the belief of purgatory? It's not scripture. I'll tell you that. That's a Catholic doctrine uh, that says, all right, you get to go to heaven, just not yet. Okay, and uh, because you still have some sins to pay for, you still have some burning to do. And there's a good article if you want. I can make a PDF out of it uh, from the Lexham Bible Dictionary on Purgatory, and uh, it's it's useful. But uh, it became Roman Catholic Church doctrine in the Council of Lyons, the Council of Florence, and then the final version of it came out at Trent. And they can't prove it by Scripture unless they bring in the apocryphal books. They try to bring in 2 Maccabees to prove purgatory, and even that text doesn't prove purgatory, but they, they say that it does. Um, they also use certain, they twist some other passages to try to defend it as well, including the judgment seat of Christ, where your works are burned up by fire, yet you're saved, yet so is through fire. And they say, see, that's fire. And they say, that's got to be purgatory, which, yeah, that's just not it. So. They don't connect purgatory to Abraham's bosom in any way at all. No. Yeah. Probably because that's Abraham and that's Old Testament, and they're not too fond of the Jews anyway. All right. So that was Ellen's question. And now I think we're done. <laughs>
Uh, do we have additional? We'll, have, we'll give Ellen our... Mary Ellen gets our... Uh, don't want to confuse Ellen with Mary Ellen. Uh-huh. Speak in the microphone, please. The hierarchy changed that uh-huh. a few years ago. They're saying there is no purgatory. They're, they're under discussions right now. Francis is a big fan of abolishing purgatory. And so they're under discussions right now whether the current pope can abolish 2,000 years of, of magisterium. I thought they already did. Is, is up. No, no, they're still discussing it. Okay, and one other thing about Catholicism regarding sisters and brothers. Uh-huh. Bill O'Reilly said on his show when he was still on <laughs> uh-huh. that he says, I've done a lot of studying about, you know, the brothers in the Bible, and brothers are just like all of us here, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Mm-hmm. But what proves that they are biological? I Matthew chapter run across two. anything. What? Yeah, no, Matthew chapter 2. We, uh, Biblically speaking, yeah, I know the Catholic tradition, of course, is that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never... Uh, but but uh, in, in Matthew, we have... Matthew one twenty five. He took... Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as wife, and kept her a virgin until... She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, now the language of until means that it's up till then, and that's where it stops, right? It doesn't say he kept her a virgin forever, kept her a virgin until, all right? After the firstborn son, then Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations, and they produced other children. And the natural reading of Adelphos is brother, and Adelphi is sister. So unless you have context that leads you to believe that they're cousins or near kinsmen or something of that nature, which is really more of a Hebrew use than a Greek use anyway. But um, when the natural reading is the natural reading, and I think it's, it's, it's definitive in verse 25 there, if you're doing something until, that means after that you're not doing that anymore. And so that's what that text says, that he only kept her a virgin until the birth of, of their firstborn. And uh, anyway, that's the aspect there. Appreciate that. So uh, if I did not get to your question, then uh, you can join the email parade that comes in. That's, that's good, though. There were four that came in on email this week. Appreciate that. Let's get to Philippians 1 and pick up uh, this study, because this is a contrast of life and death, and uh, they're useful in the beside the, side, uh, beside the point points that they make. And so this is point four in the outline, if you're keeping your own outline and following along. This is point four. And I've got an A, B, C, D, and E, and I just realized uh, I should also have an F in there that used to be in there and it's not anymore. So I'm not sure why I took it out, but I want to put it back in again. And so uh, we might do that tonight or we might do that on Sunday. But the point is, is that matters of life and death, if you are an unbeliever, (laughs) if if you are just, a, say, a, an unsaved human being on this planet, you don't know about Christ and, and the Word of God or eternal life, well then, a matter of life and death is the ultimate. That's, that's everything. I mean, what can be more serious than a matter of life and death? And so that idiom gets used, that expression gets used a lot. And it's, it, it's used to communicate something that is of the utmost seriousness, something that is, that is foremost in, in any consideration. And, uh, and it's interesting how the Bible kind of brushes that off to the side and says, wait a minute, there are bigger issues. And in terms of life, there's spiritual life as well as physical life. And in terms of death, there's spiritual death as well as physical death. And then ultimately the real you know, eternal tragedy is the second death, which is the lake of fire. And so when it just comes to matters of physical life and physical death, that's, uh, that's really beside the point. That that there are other uh, things we should be focused on. And so a lot of times in our prayers, we want to know, we want to be able to adapt, uh, for example, to live as Christ and to die as gain and say, you know, Father, I've got this loved one, they've got cancer, I'm praying for them. And, and of course, my selfishness wants them to live, but, but God knows best. What's the outcome of this test going to be? Are they going to live or are they going to die? And uh, what gives the maximum glory for Jesus Christ? If, uh, if it's their death, why am I not praying for that? Okay, and uh, and different things because we don't know we don't know the outcome of these things and and, and some and some are, I admit some are very hard if a child is is uh, is killed you know that's that's a hard test to deal with how how does that happen in the plan of God see well what what 
comes from that? What's the testimony of that? See, So anyway, there's a lot of things, and we may never know. That's the point. We're walking by faith, not by sight. We may not see what God does with these things. But God does, and that's His plan, and that's His good pleasure. And so uh, Galatians 2 is the first of these passages where it says our life in Christ is Christ living in us. Are you familiar with this text? We've covered a lot of these on Sunday already. But our life in Christ is Christ living in us. This is my mother's favorite passage in the whole Bible was Galatians chapter 2. And now that we are saved, you know, we had a former kind of life before salvation. But now, uh, as he says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Let's, let's know what this reality is. This is what happens. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a positional identification whereby we are placed in Christ. And, and at the moment of salvation, this is true for every one of us, at the moment of our salvation we are baptized in union with Christ. That means His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His session, and His session. And so being baptized with Christ in His death means I have been crucified with Christ. That is a positional reality. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Before I was saved, yeah, it's all about me. <laughs> Any unbeliever, before they come to Christ, uh, the, the life of the unbeliever is the life of I. I, 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 looking out for number one. And Satan and his five I wills is the, is the you know, the, kind of the genesis for that whole mindset. Uh, but now that I'm in Christ, it's no longer I. Isn't that great? And we, we, are, we are ushered into, think about it, how could it be any other way? We are ushered into a family whereby the needs of the other are more important than ourselves. Okay? Because that's how it was created. That's how Christ, Christ wasn't thinking of Himself when He was on the cross. I was on His mind. You were on His mind. He had each one of us personally in mind. And so the very act of, of, of Calvary is what what launched this new body called the church, the body of Christ. And the idea that there is a heavenly people that's going to operate on, sacrificially on behalf of others, that's Christ-like right there. That's what He was doing on the cross. So, uh, the life that I now live, I, in the flesh, I'm still in a fallen body, but I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And this, uh, this you think it's simple, and yet... We lose sight of it more often than not. We've got to keep coming back to this and remind ourselves it's faith. We were saved by faith. We're going to walk by faith all day, every day. It's got to be by faith. And, uh, and so there it is. So the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God and, uh, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And this is the, uh, this is the life and death issue here. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, we talk about the bride that goes beyond death. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 Physical death is not an obstacle to the bride's life with Christ. And uh, this, is, this is a fun text to work through too. You've got chapter 4 with the great rapture doctrine, you've got chapter 5 with the second advent doctrine, and you've got the whole general eschatology then here that we, that we understand. And uh, the fact that we're not destined for wrath, that's good news. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath. So anyone that tries to tell you the church has to go through the tribulation, uh, don't, don't buy it. That's why we have 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians in our Bibles. Uh, we're not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice though, verse 10, who died for us on our behalf, for our sake, for our benefit, so that whether we are awake or asleep. And that's great too. And this is language that comes from chapter 4 and it talks about physical death and and it's just uh, for the time being you know my mom died five years ago but that's just for the time being okay uh that her body is asleep in a sense until such time as it is awakened in the resurrection okay so whether we are awake or asleep we will live together with him and uh, the church has a glorious future and that future is going to be when the trumpet sounds when the whole body of christ living and dead the whole body of Christ is going to be transformed and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And uh, the blessed hope that we have to look forward to. So whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, physical death is not an obstacle. And this is, this is so unusual because in every other circumstance, from Adam and Eve and the history of humanity to today, and until the rapture really, I mean the whole history of marriage is such that 
uh, till death us do part, <laughs> right? That the death ends it. And when you're widowed, uh, you're, you're, you're free in Christ to stay a widow, you're free in Christ to remarry, and you're free in Christ, you're not under bondage anymore at that point because death is the release, is the end of the, of the marital uh, uh, obligation, right? Until, except, here's an exception to the rule, the one marriage in the history of marriage that uh, death does not end, okay? Because it's the bride uh, of Christ. And so uh, physical death is not the obstacle or any obstacle to the bride's life with Christ. And, and the more we dwell on this, I think it's useful for us because you see Jesus is presently seated at the Father's right hand. He's the head of the church. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. We too are seated at the Father's right hand. And we need to start considering that and not losing sight of our heavenly focus in everything that we do. So uh, these things I think become uh, quite special. In, uh, in that daily anticipation that today could be the day, that trumpet could sound today. And I, and I pray that it is uh, in, uh, in, in many ways. So this is called our blessed hope. And what's the very next verse as well? It says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So these eschatological passages are highly fruitful for mutual encouragement, mutual reciprocal encouragement. This isn't just you know, pastors preach the rapture a lot at your people. Okay? No, it's one another. It's each one of us. We should each one of us be reminding each other, hey, trumpet pending, right? Or here, there, in the air. Hey, are we still good for lunch next Monday? Well, yeah, trumpet pending. Okay? Because if the the trumpet sounds, I'm not coming back to uh, to have lunch with you. Okay? We're both going to be gone. And it's a good reminder day by day, moment by moment. We're just living one day at a time in uh, in that blessed hope. So, Anyway, these things are useful. Um, don't fall for it. Again, there's a, there's a crowd, uh, there's, there's a real spirit of apostasy, I think, in this age, and that, that apostasy is not, um, it, it's promoting church attendance, but it's promoting church attendance so it can spread more apostasy. And, and so that it can, it can promote watered-down doctrine, it can promote false views. And one of the dangerous things that's out there is that quit emphasizing prophecy. You know, prophecy doesn't edify anybody. We, we need to be practical. We need to learn how to love one another and all this, this emotional stuff. But ultimately I found, and I think the Scripture bears this out, that the eschatological passages are the ones God has designed for our maximum encouragement. This verse right here says encourage one another and build one another up as you're doing. And that's an eschatological passage, the end of chapter 4. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That's the conclusion to the rapture doctrine right there. And so, you know, you get some light and fl- I call them light and fluffy. You get these light and fluffy approaches to, to you know, preaching, the, the, the sermonettes for, for Christianettes or, or whatever you want to call them. And, and they get these little moral homilies so that we can be good, we can be nice. It's kind of the theology of nice. And when you don't stress the eschatology, I think you're removing that blessed hope. I think you're removing that, that uh, sense of purpose and, and imminency that the Scriptures the scriptures give us. So um, anyway, that's my soapbox and I'll get off it, but that's an opinion in, uh, in light of this. So uh, what's another life and death passage? How about uh, the one we're looking at tonight? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Philippians 1 verses 20 and 21. I call that a win-win, <laughs> right? How do you lose at that point? Okay, It's a win-win. So to live as Christ. And, and he'll expand upon that in a little bit. We'll see in these upcoming verses. He says, you know, if I, if I stay, that means more fruitful labor for you guys. And uh, kind of just imagine. You know, the, the previous time when Paul was in Philippi, it didn't go so well. He was thrown in jail. He was beaten. They had to leave the next morning. And he didn't spend a lot of time there. So he was looking to going back, especially since this flock had been such an encouragement to him in, in the intervening uh, you know, months and couple years. Um, he was looking forward to going back. He says in verse 22, if I am to live on in the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I mean, think about who benefits if Paul gets to stay and, and serve with them, and, and uh, the fruit that's born, and the labor, and the, the, the crowns that are stored up in heaven, and all the things. So it's like a win-win, all right? It's not thinking that, and we've got to think that way 
in all our prayers. We're praying for someone with cancer and it's not a win-lose. It's not a, if they die, we don't say, oh, God didn't answer our prayers. He did answer our prayers. We should have been praying better, <laughs> right? We, uh, because it's not, it's, that's a win-win also in that regard. And, uh, and I like that, okay? So it's a win-win. In, uh, it's not like you're playing Scrabble where one's going to lose and one's going to win. And, and of course, I want to win all of them. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a win-win in the sense that when the, the, the plan of God is unfolded and Christ is glorified, that's the win right there. We're not going to be put to shame in, uh, in anything. All right, now, what order do I want to do this one in? I'm going to give you D and I'm going to squeeze an extra one in and then I'm going to give you E, which will be renumbered F when we're done with it. So let's look at D. Let's look at Colossians, all right? Living in Christ means we are no longer living in the world and its elementary things. We're no longer living in the world and its elementary things. And this is a matter of perspective. And this is a matter of choosing how to think. We want to think biblically. So have this attitude, have this way of thinking. We are no longer living in this world. Right? And understand what the cosmos is. We're not talking about planet Earth. Yes, we're all on planet Earth. Okay? Um, but the idea of being in the world but no longer of the world. The idea that we're aliens and strangers. We're ambassadors for Christ. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Since that is a reality, we ought to live that way every single day. Take that reality and make it a personal realization in, in all that you do. See. And so a couple of chapters in Colossians addresses this. Uh, Colossians 2.20 and Colossians 3.3. 3. Um, very close together here. And uh, I, this is the context of what I cite when we have our baptism services. Uh, but Colossians 2.20. If you have died with Christ, and, you, and it's a first class condition, you have. This is assumed to be true. Since you have died with Christ, to the stoicheia. Remember the stoicheia? We did a whole study on stoicheia back in the Galatians series. Alright? And if you've forgotten, then you can go get those notes and sent, uh, MP3s are sitting there on the website. But if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the cosmos, why as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All right? And so understand how this question is being formulated. It says, well, if this is the case, and it is, why are you doing this? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> okay? I mean, seriously, what are you, what are you thinking? Okay? Are you thinking? Um, so as if you were living in the world. Why are you living as if you're living in the world? Because you're not. You were rescued from this world. This cosmos is no longer your home. And yet, too many believers are living as if it was. And they're operating based on the stoicheia. Okay? And the stoicheia, the fundamental things, the elementary principles. These are kind of the, remember how we discussed this? These are the, these are the uh, conventional wisdom aspects of the world that, well, just everybody knows right? Everybody knows based on human viewpoint, based on how this world works. Okay? If you, if you do good, good things will happen. If you do bad, bad things will happen. Everybody knows that. Well, wait a minute. Is that what the Bible says? Or is that your human philosophy? Okay? Is that the stoichia? Is that the basic principle of this cosmos that Satan likes to use to, to discourage believers? Because I'm, I'm walking right, but I'm still going through undeserved suffering. Why does that happen? And then Satan sends little minions out to say, that's not right, that's not fair. Or to accuse you, like Job and his accuser showed up and said, all right, Job, what did you really do? Okay. And have you ever noticed that? They want to pile on, don't they? First it's Weinstein and then it's 50 others and the, uh, the, the huge scandals are busting out now all over the place. Because of the elementary principles of this world. Okay? And those elementary principles, those stoicheia, those, those fundamental lies that Satan just beats everybody up with. And uh, all too often even Christians start thinking that way. They start adopting world viewpoints. That's wrong. We should be dead to all of that. Alright, so as if you were still living in the world, why do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? What do we 
Levitical priests all of a sudden? I mean, do we have all this list of clean versus unclean birds? We got all this list of, of do this and don't do that and, and uh, whatever? No. Now notice it says in verse 22, all of these things refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So it's a man-made religion. It's, it's, it's these traditions of legalism. It's, uh, it's a religion that says, hey, you know, follow these rules and you'll be better than the next guy and then you can be prideful about that and you can become part of the legalism police. And I mean, there's whole, there's whole industries that are, you know, books that are written and conferences that are held and all kinds of things. And it's just the commandment and teaching of men. These are matters which have to be sure. Do you see the last verse of chapter 2? Matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. I mean, it seems okay, right? And self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. No value. It is 100% worthless. So as much energy as you spend trying to become the biggest legalist since Paul, guess what? You've accomplished nothing. And worse than that is you've failed to achieve all the works you were saved. You were saved in the good works prepared beforehand that you should walk in them and you haven't been walking in them. You've been chasing these things all, all your time. Anyway. Um, no, we're no longer living in the world. Yeah, we're still here, but this, this world's not our home. We live on planet Earth, but not in this cosmos. Okay, we're occupied with Christ. Our focus is on the things above. And that's what chapter 3 starts off with. Therefore, if you have been, it's another first class condition. It's assumed to be true. Since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. That's where your attention is supposed to be. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. The Bible commands us how to think. And if we don't think the way the Bible tells us how to think, God's going to highlight that. We're going to come under discipline. He's, he's the master of uh, attitude adjustments. He will show us where we have a different attitude and how to uh, adjust them. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's true for every born-again believer of the church age. All right, When you come to faith in Christ, you have died been crucified in Christ, died to sin, died to this world, died to the law. There's I think seven different objects of what we've died to in the, in the scriptures. And so we have died. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. Now what does that mean? What does that mean to be hidden? Hidden inside, hidden. Okay, waiting to be revealed. It's like the apocalypse. Jesus is waiting to be revealed. The, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ and when's that going to be? Well, when it happens, we're going to be revealed too. And this creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. So we have a revelation. We have a revelation. We are going to be revealed. Until that time, though, we're still hidden. Okay? And and maybe this is a way that will be helpful for us. I know some of us are struggling with friends in other churches, and uh, there's Christians that have other viewpoints of the kingdom, and some have a very militant view of the kingdom now. And, uh, you know, working hard to, you know, make this world a better place for Jesus so we can hand it to him when he gets here and say, you know, aren't you pleased with what we've done for you? That's not the plan of God. (laughs) J. Vernon McGee used to call that, uh, you know, 50 years ago, J. Vernon McGee called that whitewashing the devil's devil's world. What are we accomplishing at that point? Um, No, we're hidden, waiting to be revealed even as Christ is seated at the right hand waiting to be revealed. All right. Then you also be revealed with Him. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also be revealed with Him in glory. I would point out for you there, verse 4, Christ who is our life is revealed. Isn't that what we were just studying in Philippians chapter 1? For me to live is Christ. Christ who is our life will be revealed. Anyway, it's a good rule of thumb. It's a good benchmark to use if you're trying to evaluate how your Christian walk is going. If your life, as much of it is Christ, you're doing better, and as much of it is yourself, you're not. Okay, We've got to have less of us and more of Christ, and that's what Zoe Life uh, centers on here in the New Testament. All right, now I'm going to get to Romans. Right now on my Romans slide, Romans is E. I'm going to make that F. Because I want to squeeze an E in in between. And like I say, I, I, 
It was on there. It's not anymore. All right, so the E that I've got on there is going to become an F when we get to it. Before we do that, though, let me just make up a new E here on the spot and join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've got another life and death passage here whereby life and death is beside the point. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, this has to do with uh, the, the, the perspective that we have as, as church age saints. What is our mindset? What is our attitude towards one another, towards this lost and dying world? What is our role in, uh, in this? So, um, and this, the whole chapter is, is uh, a good contrast between the temporal and the eternal. If this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. All right? So that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. You know, if we happen to physically die, no big deal. Okay, because it's just a tent anyway. You don't want to live in that tent forever. There's a, there's a house and uh, God's going to clothe you. And this is, uh, I, I teach this as an interim body. We receive the moment we, we are face to face with Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not the resurrection body of power and glory. We don't get that till the trumpet. But if this tent is torn down, we do have a building waiting for us in the heavens. And, uh, and we got the contrast there. So that, that's the early part of the chapter. And then verse 6 tells us that this is an encouraging message, being always of good courage, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, you know, clinging to physical life. And um, somebody the other day was saying, well, what's wrong with that? I, you know, a lot of it is instinct. A lot of it is this creation. I think a lot of it's our sin nature. I think our sin nature and our flesh doesn't want to die. And so a lot of our survival instinct is the sin nature that knows that once we're dead, we're in glory and He's going into the ground with this fallen body. That no good thing that's inside of each one of us. But when we have God's viewpoint, we know that while we're here in the flesh, we're absent from the Lord. How long do we want to prolong this absence? Because He's our our Lord. We're His bride. And uh, so forth. Anyway, we walk by faith, not by sight. We would prefer to be absent from the body, be at home with the Lord. That's, that's uh, much better, again, to die as gain. So that would be the benefit. But with that, though, comes judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's verse 10. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Okay? And we've taught this as well. If you want teaching on the judgment seat of Christ, we've even got a booklet, the, the ABC Reader on the judgment seat of Christ. But recognize that. One life eternal consequences. That when we are face to face we are judged for what we did on this earth. And when we want to keep short accounts, we want to stay in fellowship, we want to maximize our production. The, uh, if you think eternal security is a goad to laziness, think again. Uh, the consequences are, are horrendous for the renegade, for the reversionist, the believer that is eternally secure but throwing away his, his rewards left and right. So we will appear before Jesus Christ and be recompensed. Recompensed. That's payback. Okay. Verse 11, Therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade man. So if this is our thinking, and and so the point E, um, heavenly thinking, mindful of the judgment seat of Christ, becomes a great goad for fervency. And so here's what we see. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade man. We get the more heavenly minded we are, the more urgent we're going to be with one another here on this earth to say, "Come on, run that, run with endurance, run that race. Don't lose heart. Don't uh, throw away your crown." So we persuade men. Um, verse fourteen: For the love of Christ controls us. The more heavenly focused we are, the more we're locked in on God's love. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. And here's our life and death contrast. That one died for all, therefore all died. Isn't that beautiful? Just like one sinned. Adam Adam sinned, we all sinned. One died, we all died. When you're baptized into union with Jesus Christ. So one died for all, therefore all died. And what's the benefit for this? It's on behalf of everyone but who obtains that benefit? 
He died for all so that they who live, notice that? That's not everybody, but it's they who live. So he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And uh, this obviously this defends unlimited atonement. This shows that the sins of the whole world were cast upon Christ, but only believers receive the benefit of that death. So he died for all so that they who live, that's a subset of all, they who live might no longer live for themselves. So here's the beside the point point that's being made about life and death. He died for all so we don't live for ourselves anymore. We're going to live for Him. We no longer live for themselves but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Isn't that beautiful? And then it says, therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. We're a heavenly people. And that's how we recognize one another on a heavenly eternal basis. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. We're no longer thinking about His incarnation, His humanity. That's behind Him. He is now seated at the Father's right hand in victory and glory. And so are we. We're heavenly minded as we look to one another. And that's what we're seeing on a spiritual perspective, either in Christ, in Adam, glorified as a new creation or on the road to hell. Okay? So if anyone is in Christ, is a new creature, the old things pass away, behold, new things have come. And this really shapes, this really shapes how we live. All right? And uh, things that the unbelievers are all worked up about, all worked up about this, all worked up about that, or this hospitalization, or this disease, or whatever. You know, my, my first question is, are they saved? <laughs> I mean, you told me they're terminal, you told me they're into hospice care, you told me they have cancer and all this other stuff. Do they have eternal life? Are they saved? Because if they're not saved, that's my first and only prayer request right there. Why bother for physical healing if they're not saved? And so uh, this is what we have. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And uh, it, is, it is a beautiful perspective and it motivates us to be evangelistic. It motivates us to pursue our ministry. Every one of us has this ministry of reconciliation that's described here in, in, these, in these verses. These things are from God, verse 18 tells us, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. And then what? We just goof off until we get there? <laughs> is that what it says? I mean, He reconciled us to Himself through Christ, so what? We just sit around doing nothing until we get to heaven? No, He committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. You and I get busy as ministers of, as our ambassadors in preaching Christ, preaching the gospel. See, verse 19 says, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Ever think about that? What was Jesus doing in the first advent? In His first advent incarnation? Walking around here and there talking to knuckleheads, okay? Peter and those guys. But also, what was happening? The Father was in Christ. God the Father was at work. In Christ, we're told. What was He doing? Reconciling the world to Himself. The Father was working in Christ to will and to do of His good pleasure. What's the Father doing today? Working in us, in Christ, to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so what the Father was doing in Jesus Christ in one monopresent humanity person walking around one place, now He's doing with the whole bride of Christ all over this world. Working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight. Reconciling the world to Himself. Committing to us the ministry, of the word of reconciliation. So we become ambassadors. God is making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is our calling. And you don't have to be a pastor or an evangelist or whatever your gift is. Every believer has this ministry. Every believer has this calling. Because you have been reconciled to God. This is now your calling. Anyway. So that's, I didn't mean to read the entire chapter, but there it is. All right, And um, I'm going to rework the outline before uh, Sunday, and uh, all of that's going to show up somehow under a point E. 
Then we're going to get to what on Sunday will be a point F. Just pretend uh, that's what it says there right now. Um, it's the great theology of Romans. And the great theology of Romans, have you ever done a study on Romans? The great theology of Romans highlights spiritual death in Adam and eternal life in Christ. And it does so positionally, experientially, and ultimately. We want to embrace all of that. If we, if we're, if we want to be solid on every component of this. If not, if we're, if we're fuzzy in certain realms, I think it gets us in trouble. It gets believers in trouble when they confuse their positional sanctification with their experiential sanctification. And that gets, that gets muddled all the time. And it's unfortunate when that happens. And uh, confusing the uh, positional with the experiential or the experiential with the ultimate. Also, if, if uh, it gets confused between physical life and spiritual life, physical death and spiritual death. And there are some good men, solid men, that make a mess out of chapter 5 and it breaks my heart. Because they read that chapter the way their theology demands that they read it and it's directly backwards of what the verse says. And so we have to kind of deal with that as well. And so these issues of life and death, these beside the point points that, that are being made, uh, I think really become important for us to embrace, to apply, to communicate with others. Um, aspects that God has, has signified significantly. So I don't know, we're not going to get through all those verses in the, in the short time that's left, but uh, let's look at chapter 5 and you'll see what I'm talking about. And then we'll just have to save the rest of this. Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll have to save the rest of this for Sunday morning. That's something else. If, if the trumpet sounds and we're caught up to be with the clouds, I'm not coming back on Sunday to, uh, to preach anything. Okay? We'll be with Jesus and He's a marvelous preacher. We'll learn uh, what we can from Him. Romans 5.10 And uh, it's, it's a life and death passage. And it uses the words, the same Thanatos for death, the same Zoe for life. The, the vocabulary is not the puzzle. It's the, uh, it's the application where I think uh, folks are taking these things out of context and, and miss um, it, it's, it's a malappropriation of, of these things. And you'll see what I mean. Okay, so um, we know the outline. Chapter three: all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Chapter four: we're justified by grace through faith. We got the justification in in uh, chapter four, and now the extension of that in chapter five. So, having been justified, where are we now? What do we do now? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is the Christian walk, and it's. Uh, centered here in chapter 5. Now notice in verse 10, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by His life. Understand there's a proportion that's being presented there. It's a contrast and it's a proportion. It's a, you know, if this is true and it is, how much more is this? Okay, And we all can praise God that this is true. He died. I'm saved. Hallelujah. But how much more? How much more? And so on a, on a proportional scale, you know, it's like how do, you, how do you put them on a scale? Because the one is so much more it's, it makes this other one seem kind of small. And that's the point. How does salvation become small? <laughs> okay, well, how much more then? It says, how much more? Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And this is why I say it's important that we distinguish between positional and experiential. The Bible uses saved in those different ways. So I'm, I was saved in September of 1973, right? I've told you that story many times. And my mother sat me down at a dining room table on a Saturday morning and, uh, and, and I got saved that day. I've been saved ever since. I can never not be saved because of eternal security, all right? But there, the Bible uses the word saved in additional ways besides that conversion experience, besides that moment where you receive eternal life, besides that moment where you become born again. All right? And the other uses of saved, uh, we're told here, are much more, much more shall we be saved by His life. 
So if the death of Christ saved me from the penalty of sin, what does the life of Christ save me from? The power of sin, right? I'm now walking in newness of life. Jesus Christ ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. And so if I sin, I've got an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we understand this is now introducing us to a a beautiful realm of our Christian walk called experiential sanctification. This is where we're saved today and tomorrow and all day, every day. The Word of God just comes alive and it saves us. Sometimes it saves us before we realize that we need to be saved. Okay? Because there's attitudes that are creeping in. And then the Word of God comes and wakes us up and says, that's not a healthy attitude. Oh, yeah. Because that would have led to thinking and thinking would have led to doing. And then, you know, then I'm three kinds of carnal. <laughs> okay? So the Word of God comes alive. The Word of God saves. The living Savior provides this salvation. And uh, we have that to look forward to. It gets on down. Um, notice these contrasts in verse 17, these contrasts in verse 21. And, and when you understand the, the pattern of Adam and how Adam was a type of him who was to come, you see that in 514? Adam, the, there's the offense of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. So there's a whole realm of theology called typology. We want to understand the patterns that were established, the, the, the type and the anti-type, the, the preview and the fulfillment. Adam was one such. And of course Jesus is the, the second Adam, the, the uh, fulfillment, the anti-type to Adam's type. And so um, all the doctrine that comes into this. Verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one. Understand the power that sin has, the power that death has. That as a consequence of Adam's sin, not only are we positionally dead, but we're functionally dead. There's a power of that death. That we're, we're walking according to the, the course of this world. We're walking according to the pattern of the, 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 the prince of the, of the power of the air. There's a power in that. Death is reigning through the one. It's not just that we're unbelievers and we need to be saved. We are uh, operating on that basis. It, is, it reigns over us. Now there's much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So there is a ruling power, there is a guiding power that happens from Christ, from His Word. This is why it's the life of Christ that keeps on saving us experientially in, in, like I say, progressive um, experiential sanctification. So how much more? Okay, Beyond the position, we get that. The unbeliever needs to get saved. The believer is saved. All right, That's a given. This text is going so much further beyond that. The unbeliever who's in Adam, that death in Adam rules him. It rules him. Whereas the love of Christ should be ruling us. And that's our privilege as believers in Jesus Christ. So this abundance of grace, the gift of righteousness, it's going to reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And that's a reality if you apply Philippians 1, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Okay? It becomes a ruling power in your life. Same thing in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And to me that's vital. To me that's so much bigger than just, you know, it's not just that, that a grace ministry is preferable to a legalistic ministry, you know? I mean, clearly it's preferable. Who, who wouldn't want, if you've ever been a part of a legalistic ministry, who would ever want to go back to that again? <coughs> All right? All right, Lord, I'm done. <coughs> Let me just finish this thought. Look at verse 21. Grace, not legalism. It's like the legalist is happy to be saved but is throwing away the very ruling power that would benefit them through that life of Christ and the ongoing salvation of of experience. (coughs) All right. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.
Okay, well, that's kind of an intro. We'll, get, we'll, we'll pick up on this on Sunday because we've got chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 14. There's just a wealth of, of meat in Romans that's teaching us about this life and death whereby the real point is not being saved. The real point is how the power of that salvation is poured out in us day by day, moment by moment. And uh, hopefully that will, that will be clear. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time in your word, for giving a voice, Father, that has uh, endured to the end of the hour, or, or most of the hour anyway. And Father, uh, thank you for our visitors and ask for your blessings for them in their travels. And Father, just uh, thank you again for the power of your truth, how it comes alive, how it shapes us, how it transforms us, how it keeps us, Father, from being conformed to this world. So thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.